135, and uh, we'll go down to um, verse 13, and we'll talk about some more reasons to give praise to the Lord. Now, I thought about, in the title of this and even in what we're looking at, we sing a song that says, 10,000 reasons, right? But I bet if we were to be honest, it'd be hard to think of 50 or 100 reasons. And sometimes we get real generic and we praise the Lord for the same old thing in the same old way and we just don't really think a whole lot about it. Well, let's do some thinking tonight. Engage your mind. As your kindergarten teacher used to say, put on your thinking cap tonight and let's take a look at what the psalmist tells us about praising the Lord. Verse 13, your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your frame, O Lord, or your fame, O Lord, throughout all generations. For the Lord will judge his people and he will have compassion on his servants the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. So notice the contrast that the psalmist gives us between the true and the living God and someone who would make, form, <coughs> and bow down before an idol. Can you think of anything more ridiculous? It's just insanity, isn't it? And so uh, he tells us some things about why the Lord deserves our praise. Number one, the Lord deserves praise because he is unchanging. Now, if you go back and you look throughout history at the things that mankind has worshipped, they change. Now, in essence, they're the same, but they change. There are different gods and goddesses in different nations. When we were in India, we would always get there about the time that they were worshipping the god Ganesh. And the god Ganesh is an ugly ele elephant. And uh, we used to tease Brother Ron Herod and say, this is what uh, you do as an Alabama fan because they have an elephant. And we said, it's Ganesh, an ugly elephant, and you guys are idolaters. And he didn't think that was funny, but we did. And uh, they would take this elephant that they would make, different sizes, and they would have uh, some big and some small. And uh, they would worship this god, Ganesh. And then they would take him, after they built him, put him in a truck, and then go throw him in the, in the river. I don't really know why or understand much about that, but that's what they would do. Now, they probably didn't have an ugly elephant back in the days that the psalmist was writing uh, this particular psalm. Why? Because their gods change. They adopt new gods, they change their shape, change their form, and they try something new. And when their gods get defeated, like in battle, when another country with other gods comes in and defeats them, then many times they would abandon their gods and they would look for a, well, a better god, a better set of gods, a god that was stronger, a god that was more powerful, or they might even adopt the gods of their 
conquerors. I mean, obviously, you can't conquer me unless your gods are stronger, so I'll go with the strong god for 600, Alex, you know? And uh, so they would do that over and over and over, and they changed. Even when we get into relatively, relatively modern times, when you look back at your Greek gods and goddesses, what happened to them when the Romans took over and conquered all of the Western world? Well, they worshipped the same gods and goddesses. They gave them different names and many times different forms. Basically the same, but they looked different and they were named differently. Constant change in all of this. But when you look at the God that we find in the Bible, He is the God whose name endures forever. Now, in a Hebrew context, what did a name mean? Well, the name was the description of the person and the character of the person. Jacob, his name meant deceiver. What kind of a person was he? He was a trickster. Tricked his brother out of his birthright. Tricked his father into giving him the blessing. I mean, the name sort of fit him. They were very literal in their names. And so the psalmist is saying, Lord, your name and your rep reputation endures forever and the idea there is it never changes God has no need to update you never find Yahweh 2.0 or anything like that you never find any reason for him to change and it's not just that he is a stubborn God who refuses to change he is a ready for this a perfect God who has absolutely no need to change because there is nothing you can, in, you can ever do to improve God. He is everything. He is all in all. And so he is absolutely perfect in every way, unchanging. He deserves praise because he is unchanging. Now, uh, Stephen Lawson, commenting on these verses, said, His name, his character, endures forever. He is forever the same, never diminishing, never changing. His divine person is renowned through all generations. I mean, think about it. We're still talking about him thousands of years after this psalm was written. He's immutable and fixed. And even when God's people are faithless, needing to be disciplined, he remains unchanging in his compassion. Even so... God is unchanging in his relationship with his people. Now think about the fact that this never-changing God, if he is the one who has died for you, he has redeemed you, he has justified you by the blood of Christ, declared you not guilty, for you to lose that and to die and to go to hell means that God would have to change. And he's an unchanging God. And the fact that he is an unchanging God, it means regardless of how we act, how we perform, what we do and what we think, he never wavers in his love toward us, in his compassion toward us, in his plan for us, and in the eternity that he has prepared for us. And so you're so wishy-washy and you waver so often. You're hot and you're cold. Sometimes you're like the church at Laodicea. You're just lukewarm. Eh, who cares, right? 
And God never changes. He always has faithful, covenant, passionate, wonderful, intense love for you in spite of the way you act because he is a God who does not change. There's a reason to praise him. Number two, God deserves our praise because he is actively working. You know, God never has leisure. God never is idle. God is never just taking a break. You know, when uh, Elijah met uh, the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, you remember how they, were, they kept trying to get their God to answer them. They would dance and gyrate and shout, and they would sing, and they would cut themselves. And uh, Elijah would taunt them. Remember that? And he would say, uh, you know, maybe your God's out taking a break. Maybe he's gone to relieve himself. Maybe he's somewhere else at this point. You know, just making fun of them. And uh, yet when he called on God, he said, show Israel that you were the true and the living God. And fire fell from heaven. Why? Because God did not have to be coaxed. God did not have to be manipulated. God did not have to be pushed into doing that. Why? Because this was God's plan all along. And the same God that did that is the same God that is controlling the heavens. He's the same God that is keeping earth spinning the way it's supposed to spin, orbiting the sun the way it is supposed to orbit the sun. He's the same God that gives us life because Paul said, in him we live and move and have our being. He's the reason you're alive. He's the reason your brain functions. He's the reason your heart is beating. He's the reason that blood is circulating. He's the reason for all of that. He is constantly at work. And he's at work spiritually as he fights battles for us, as he defends us, as he uh, is the one who defeats the enemy, as he is working all things toward his plan and his purpose. And it never veers off track and everything is going exactly the way God has planned it to the end to which God has intended. And we're just along for the ride, aren't we? He gives us his armor, and the armor always works. The belt of truthfulness does not wear out. It doesn't need to be replaced. The breastplate of righteousness is still protecting your heart and your emotions from unrighteousness and from evil. The shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace are still allowing you to dig in and stand strong and stand firm against the enemy. The helmet of salvation is still giving you hope that in the midst of the battle that you are tired of and you are sweating and you are straining and you're putting everything you have to endure this battle and endure this storm and the helmet gives you hope that it's not forever. God didn't just say take off running, give it all you've got and it'll never end. No, there is an end, folks. There is a finish line and you'll either cross that finish line like Paul did in 2 Timothy 4 in death or you will will cross the finish line in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when the Lord returns for his people. One day it's going to be all over and we have this hope, the hope of our salvation that we wear as a helmet. The sword of the Spirit doesn't need to change. It's the word of God, the inerrant, infallible 
eternal, all-sufficient Word of God that always tells the truth, never needs to be updated because it is more updated than the newscast this afternoon. It is more up-to-date than anything that is on the Internet. It is more up-to-date than anything that anyone could ever do because it is written and breathed out without error by the God of the ages who knows the end from the beginning, the Alpha and the Omega. This is our God. And we have the shield of faith because we are able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked just like Paul did, just like Daniel did, just like Joseph did. Why? Because we don't need anything else. It is sufficient and we have an unchanging God and this God is unchanging in his relationship with us. His promises are still true and he is actively at work defending us, working in our lives. And notice it says he is judging his people and he is still doing that. And to judge his people, it means he is thinking, he is looking, he is watching, he is appraising, he is observing. All of these things are taking place and he also is making decisions day by day, moment by moment about what we're going to do and what others are going to do and how things are going to turn out. And those who serve him are certainly imperfect but they trust and love him. And in the meantime, while he is putting up with us and all of our inconsistencies, he never wavers and he is compassionate. Can I call your attention to Psalm 103, 13 and 14? Let this sink in and bless you after a hard day. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. Oh, if it weren't for that, he would consume us. If it weren't for that, we would be constantly under his wrath and constantly under his judgment. But because of Jesus absorbing all of the wrath of God on the cross of Calvary, what do we get? We have our sins paid for, and we have a compassionate God who looks at us and a sympathetic high priest in the Lord Jesus who says, I don't condone, but I understand. I don't approve, but I understand. Because the Bible says he is a sympathetic high priest who is pleading our case and defending us from the enemy's accusations before a holy God. And that will never, ever change because God never ever changes boy that's a reason to give thanks to God that's a reason to praise God because if it weren't for that one thing we know for sure is if it were possible for you to lose your salvation you would you would but he is the one who keeps us Jesus told us those who trust him are in his hand and his hand is in the father's hand and the father's hand is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Can I get an amen on that? I mean, that's something to be rejoice over and something to be thankful for. The Lord doesn't change and the Lord is the one who has compassion for all of us at all times. And thirdly, notice the Lord deserves praise because he is the source of everything. Now the psalmist starts describing the idols in verse 15. Whether it's Ganesh, whether it's Buddha, 
No matter who it, it may be, whether it's something we've never seen or never heard of that ancient peoples worship, it's all the same. Verse 15, the idols of the nations, the goyim, the, the unredeemed, unregenerate people, are silver and gold. Now, silver and gold, that's eye-catching, isn't it? One commentator I read says, these idols are made of metal and they need to be polished because they tarnish. Well, he's wrong about that. Gold doesn't tarnish. Silver does, but not gold. And that's the kind of thing that catches our eye, especially if it's big in gold. It's impressive. Think about Nebuchadnezzar's image that we studied about in uh, I believe it's the fourth chapter of Daniel. It was big. It was imposing. It was beautiful. It was impressive. Now, some of the gods and goddesses that they served were, if you've ever looked at any of those, grotesque. But the image itself and the material it was made out of would have been impressive and beautiful. Gold and silver. That's eye-catching. That's eye-catching. And here we are, poor us, we serve a God that we can't even see. All of the other nations have gods they can see and things they can follow and they get stuff out of it now. But us, we just, we just have faith. And it looks like we're just singing to the air. And we're just talking about a sky God and we don't even see him or anything like that. Is, is that kind of the way it comes across sometimes? All you've got is just, just faith. Cross your fingers, knock on wood, hope for the best. And the psalmist says, don't buy it. The world can give you all kinds of shiny trinkets to go after. And yet, what are they when you get right down to it? And our idols may be a little different, but they're mainly the same. You know, we worship our jobs, our bank accounts. Sometimes we worship people. You hear a lot of love songs about, you know, I can't live without you when you completed my life and I worship the ground you walk on. You know, we ought to, as Christians, ought to be careful about that and reject those kind of things. But our idols may be a little different, but they're much the same, whether it's your automobile or your house or your bank account or whatever. The idols of the nations are silver and gold. They have earthly value, but not heavenly value, right? The work of man's hands. Now, how far does that get you? When the Bible says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, then it tells us in that, combined with this psalm, we should never worship the work of our hands or anyone else's. Works don't get you right with God. Works don't get you an audience with God. Works don't get you uh, an eternity with God. Why? Because they're dead. Look at verse 16. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. So what good are they? What good are they? They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. You see, when you think about silver and gold, you're thinking about something that humanity uses. You may have some gold on you tonight in a wedding ring or some jewelry or something like that. You may have some silver, but you didn't make the silver. Where'd you get it? Well, I got it from a jeweler. He designed and made it. We may have designed it, but he didn't make it. You know why? Because no man can make silver. No man can make gold. It came from somewhere. So what's the point? Our God made all of that silver and gold out of 
nothing. These gods and goddesses, they're fake. They have all of these things. They have the appeal and they look shiny and they look impressive and they have all of these characteristics. But they can't see, they can't speak, they can't hear, they can't even breathe. And the psalmist goes on to say that those who worship them, those who make them, those who are involved in that are like them. You know what that means? They're just as dead. Just as dead as their idols are. It's a sad thing to think about because silver and gold are just, well, they're made by God. The work of men's hands, well, also that's something created by God. He made the person and he made the hands, didn't he? And so they are worthless, they are powerless, and they are lifeless. Why would we ever be jealous? Why would we ever give credence? Why would we ever pay any attention to any of that at all? That's why as a Christian, don't look at your horoscope. Even if it's just in fun, you don't need that. That's why you don't do little things like, well, if I can just have a little luck and if I can knock on wood, you don't need luck. You've got Jesus. And he has planned your life and he is working all things together for your good because you love him and are the called according to his purpose. You don't need a Ouija board. You don't need tarot cards. You don't need any of that kind of stuff at all. Oh, but it's impressive. Yeah, like shiny silver and gold without any eyes or any ears or any mouth or any breath. It's dead. It is lifeless. It is fake. It is something that is used to deceive. It's something that drags you the wrong way. It tricks you. You've got something far, far better in the God that redeemed you and the God that you were so honored to be able to know and to be in his family. Worship and praise him and don't get distracted by all of this junk and all of the trinkets that are there in the world. Like a little kid who has a $10 bill but he can't fit it in the gum machine, so he trades it for a shiny quarter that he can get a piece of gum out of. That's the way we are, and that's the way this world is. Don't fall for it, church. Don't fall for it. And number four, the Lord deserves praise because he alone has the ability to give life. Everything that has been described here except for God is D-E-A-D. It is lifeless. There's nothing in it. Why? Because this world can't give you life. The devil can't give you life. Trees can't give you life. Gold and silver can't give you life. None of this gives you life. In fact, whenever you die, it's like somebody said about the rich man, how much did he leave behind? And the wise answer was, all of it. All of it. You can't take it with you. Because it can't give you life. But God does. God is the one that took a dead sinner like you. And he's made you alive in Christ. He has quickened you. And you're alive in the Lord and you have the life of God living in you. How do you have that? Because the Holy Spirit came to live in you at the moment of salvation. And he gave you a new spirit, a new nature so that you can relate to God. No longer are you tied down to only relating to your environment. That's all lost people can do. No longer are you tied down to just relating to what other people say about you and think about you. No, you've got a connection with Almighty God. And He has made you accepted in the Beloved. He loves you with an everlasting love. 
You are no accident. You are designed by God. And he relates to you and your spirit that he has given you relates to God. And you can understand his word. You can understand him and his ways. You can grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. You can overcome the enemy. You can overcome your hang-ups. You can overcome your past. All of those things happen because of our great God who sent his son to die on the cross for us, who raised him from the dead in victory and power and then gave that life and victory and power to you. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing and that's why he deserves praise. Because when the Bible tells us that he alone has the ability to give life, you know that. Think about verse 18. Those who make them are like them, and so is everyone who trusts in them. They're just as dead as their idols, spiritually. And the only thing awaiting them is a judgment from God that is going to put them under the wrath of God and place them separated from God in the lake of fire. How long? Forever. That's a sad Sad situation. That's why we've got to proclaim the gospel. It's the only hope that we have. And only God can take a dead sinner and bring him to life. This can never happen because those who worship and those who make them are like the idols they worship. Powerless. Lifeless. And there's no worth in their religion. There's no worth in their worship. There's no worth in their sacrifices. When my dad was in Vietnam, we had pictures and then he got a movie camera and he would take uh, Super 8 movies. Remember those? And you would see these things on the side of the road. A little thing. It looked kind of like a little box and it had things in it. And some of those things were cheap if they were made by poor people. Some were expensive if they were made by rich people. And here these starving peasants in Vietnam in the midst of a war were taking food, food that their children couldn't eat, food that their wife couldn't eat, food that the farmer couldn't eat, and they were taking it, putting in those boxes. They called them spirit houses. And they supposedly were feeding and appeasing their ancestors. Isn't that tragic? Because there's nobody eating that stuff except a wild animal. Or somebody who might steal it or something like that. And yet they would put their very livelihood, their very life in danger. Why would they do that? Why would they let their children go to bed hungry when they were feeding ancestors who were never never coming to eat any of that? Why would they do that? Because they're serving dead, worthless, lifeless idols. It doesn't get them any points with God. It doesn't make them better. It doesn't justify them. It doesn't sanctify them. And it certainly cannot glorify them. It is an exercise in futility if we've ever seen one. And that's why the Bible hates idolatry. That's why the Bible always condemns it. That's why God would judge his people Israel and Judah because they wouldn't quit worshiping the work of man's hands and they completely ignored the God who had set them free from Egypt and slavery and the God who redeems them. In fact, in the book of Judges, chapter 10, verse 14, it says, Go and cry out to the gods, little g, whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. You see, they were just like us. 
I'm just like Americans. We have no use for God. We violate him. We go against his will. We are immoral. We are nasty and filthy. And we basically spit in the face of God. Till a terror attack comes. Then we fill the churches for a week or two. Then we go back like a rubber band that's been stretched back to what we were before. That's exactly what Israel and Judah would do time and time again. Oh, there were circumstances where they would acknowledge God and there were times when they would fulfill the traditions and do the things, but they didn't really mean it. Their heart wasn't really in it. And they would go back to worshiping Baal, back to worshiping Asherah and all of those type of things whenever it was more convenient because it was more fun and it was shinier and it gave them some sense of benefit for now. But when they got in trouble, they would run to God. And so God says to them, hey, quit it. Go run to those gods you like so well. Go let it save you. And we do the same thing in our modern age. We sell our soul and give our lives to so many things that can do nothing for us except rob us because the Bible says the thief comes not to bless, not to help, not to pour into our lives. The thief comes but to kill and steal and destroy. And you can find thousands upon thousands, if not millions of people, who sold their life out to get stuff and to gain stuff. And some of them made it. And some of them made a whole lot. And they died empty. And they died spiritually dead. And they died completely worthless and bankrupt spiritually. And they're spending an eternity in hell. Because what they loved, what they worshipped, what they sold out for couldn't save them. And couldn't deliver them. They put their hope and trust in the wrong thing just as we are warned. In Psalm 96 verse 5 it says, For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So you either got a choice. You're going to bow down before something that cannot save, cannot help, cannot hear, cannot see. Or you bow before the Lord who made galaxies that we haven't even discovered yet. That's the difference. And it really, really is that clear. That's why we don't need to be timid. That's why we don't need to be ashamed. That's why we don't need to back down in front of the world. Everything they are doing is worthless. But our God made the heavens. Give me a little piece of shiny gold to bow down to. Oh, impressive. Until I look at the galaxies, till I look at the Milky Way, till I look at the planets, till I look at everything that God has made. And then there's no comparison in the greatness of our God. And that's what he's calling us to. Would you turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 17? And uh, as the writer of Kings is describing that northern kingdom of Israel, so idolatrous. And here's what he says in verse 34. To this day, they do according to the former manner. That means sin. They do not fear the Lord, and they do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law or the commandment that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. The Lord made a covenant with them and commanded them, You shall not fear other gods nor bow yourselves to them or serve them or sacrifice to them, but you shall fear the Lord who brought you out of 
the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourselves to him, and to him you shall sacrifice. And the statutes and the rules and the law and the commandments he wrote for you, you shall always be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods, and you shall not forget the covenant that I have made with you. You shall not fear other gods, but you shall fear the Lord your God, and he will deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. She you notice a lot of repetition in there. What was his point? Fear God. Bow before him. Don't fear the other gods. God must be very passionate about this, and he must care very deeply about this. And what did they do? We'll pick up again. However, they would not listen but they did according to their former manner. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. A double-minded man, James says, is unstable in all his ways. Let that, not that man think he will receive anything from God. See, notice how they were half-hearted. And I bet it wasn't 50-50. I bet it was more like 80-20 the way it's described. So they feared the Lord, but they also served their carved images. That fear wasn't worth much, was it? Their children did likewise. Boy, there's a tragedy. How are we shepherding our children? Their children did likewise. And then you want to know how far-reaching your life is? And their children's children, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. And it's right about that time in 2 Kings that the Assyrians come and carry them off into captivity. The nation fell because they would not worship God. And that is the fate of every nation, of every kingdom, of every government. I don't care how mighty they are that turn their back on the Lord. A New Testament warning. 1 John 5, 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Well, what? Well, we don't worship any idols, do we? Colossians 3, 5, another New Testament verse. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. See it? Which is idolatry. Well, maybe we worship more idols than we think. Because covetousness is something that we all battle. I want more. I want what they have. I want something else. We don't practice contentment. I'll uh, quote Paul, uh, John Piper. Paul says, covetousness, which is idolatry, so that idolatry looks like today... The activity of the human heart. See, there is the problem. That's what the New Testament gets to. It's in the heart. Destroy all of the shiny silver and gold and all of that. But if the heart's not right, it does very little good, does it? This is not a deed of the body that follows. It's a fruit on the branch. It starts in the heart. Craving. Wanting, enjoying, being satisfied by 
anything that you treasure more than God. That's covetousness. That is an idol. Paul calls this covetousness a disordered love or desire, loving more than God that ought to be loved less than God and only for the sake of God. But covetousness is the condition that this disordered heart is in, an act of loving too much what ought to be loved less. Did you get that? Loving too much what ought to be loved less. And that is why the wrath of God is coming. That is what idolatry looks like today. And it is everywhere in our culture. Think about how we're affected by that. Think about how we are ruined by that. Why? Because covetousness, loving anything more than we love God, loving something more that ought to be loved less, is covetousness, which Paul says is idolatry. So when we look at India, when we look at China, when we look at Japan, when we look at those nations and those things and primitive cultures, don't judge them too quick. Because it may be that the greatest idol of all is what is so prevalent here in 21st century America and that we battle every day. That's why Paul told us that and that's why John told us keep ourselves from idols. He wouldn't write that unless it were a problem. And it is a problem in our culture like never before. Delight yourselves in the Lord, the psalmist says, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. But our problem is delighting ourselves in the Lord. Why? Because these idols are constantly calling for our attention. And we have a heart that goes, yeah, 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 that, 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 and that. And here is the Spirit calling us today saying, all of those things leave you dead and empty, empty worthless, and lifeless. But there is a God who has compassion on you and the God that gives you life so that you can really, really live. Delight yourself in Him. Will you pray? Father, we find ourselves judging other people, condemning other people, mocking other people, looking down on other people when we ourselves in the heart do exactly what they are doing. Idolatry is a problem today for the people of God, for us, just as it was back in the days of Judah and Israel and in the days of Psalm 135. That is the work of a depraved human heart to find something to worship besides you, to find something that will satisfy beside you, to find something that will fill our lives beside you. Oh Lord, thank you that you are compassionate toward us even when we seek covetousness, which is idolatry. Forgive us of our sin. Forgive our nation of our sin. Give grace to us 
and draw us out of that and free us from the trap of idolatry or covetousness. By your grace, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.